This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. And as uh, you're doing that, I just want to thank you all for your prayers. Uh, as you know, I was gone for a bit. I was in, uh, I was in uh, southern Spain ministering to a group of churches, five or so small churches around Sevilla, and uh, they send their greetings to all of you. It was a very blessed time in both conferences and meetings and all sorts of hours spent together. And I know it seems like I've been traveling a lot lately, and that's because I have been traveling a lot lately. So your, your perception is accurate. Uh, and let me explain why a little bit. One of the reasons is that the, uh, you know, the pandemic had different effects in different countries and, and so forth. And so basically several conferences and, and meetings uh, that were supposed to take place over the last two plus years uh, were canceled. And many of these smaller congregations had a much harder time than we did, more difficult. So um, my mission has been essentially go, go out there and, and visit our mission partners that, uh, uh, that uh, we had to cancel trips to and spend time with them. So that's what's been going on. I think it'll just it'll go on like this again for a little bit into the first part of next year. But then hopefully then we'll, we'll have caught up with everything and, and we'll be back in a more, <clears throat> more regular rhythm. So I thank you for your, for your love and support for the guys here as they've been bringing the word and your prayers for me. Well, we're back in the book of 1 Peter. I remind you that Peter wrote in the first century to uh, Gentile Christians who were beginning to suffer very difficult times for their faith. And last time we were in 1 Peter on October 30th, uh, we made the transition right there at verse 13 where he calls upon them and us to respond to the love of God, the grace of God, and what he's done for us, beginning at verse 13. My text this morning is 17 through 21, but I'd like to begin at verse 13 to pick up the context where we were uh, some time ago. Would you stand please one last time in honor of God's word as I read from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, page 1014 on those Black Pew Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Peter writes, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading of it to your hearts. Let me pray one last time. Our Father, we are so blessed to address you as Father through Christ. We ask, Lord, that in your love for those of us who have gathered, those who are listening afar, that you would cause, Lord, our hearts to know and understand the precious price that was paid for our salvation in Christ, and that you would open eyes and hearts, Lord, to those who have yet to embrace this love and faith in Christ Jesus. We pray this, Lord, in his name and for your glory by the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, thank you very much. Well, the title of my message this morning is Motivation for Holy Living. Uh, motivation, what is it? Motivation uh, describes why a person does something. Motivation is the driving force behind our actions. In other words, the incentive uh, of our actions. Motivation is what propels people to do some things, some basic things like getting up in the morning on time, uh, sticking with your diet. <laughs> but mot- motivation also impels some people to do amazing things, right? Uh, some people are motivated, just motivated, impelled to endure severe hardships, not necessarily that came upon them, but they choose to, you know, climb mountain peaks under severe weather conditions. Other people are motivated to fast for days on end and and stay awake all night in prayer or uh, some people are motivated to not sleep as they study and read for an exam. And when when we see people like that or do things like that, we often ask, what motivated you? You know, what, what, what propelled you to do this? And we ask that because we want to understand what impelled them. And that's what motivation is. That's what we're speaking about. And the Apostle Peter has been writing to these first century Christians uh, who have been suffering for their faith, and he writes to motivate them to throw off their idolatrous past from their pagan backgrounds, leave that behind them after all those years, fight against the lust of their own flesh, and live holy lives. Lives that are different. Remember, that's what holiness means, to be sanctified, set apart. Lives that are different from the surrounding, unbelieving, God-rejecting, Christ-rejecting world. Uh, The key verse, the key imperative of this whole section and going into chapter two, we mentioned last time, is found in verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. That's the main uh, imperative throughout this whole section. He's just working out what it means to be holy. Now, to live a holy life has implications. Um, This will often mean standing alone. It will mean standing apart, to be rejected, maybe even by family members. Some of you experience that. To be alienated from others, to maybe experience tremendous social pressure, to live lives that are holy 
in this in this day and age is to swim upstream against the muck of our society and against uh, the muck of our culture and may even lead to persecution. And what is it to live a holy life? What is it? To live a holy life is to imitate God. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Uh, to, to live a holy life is to desire to be a child who emulates his father. Verse 14, as obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That time's behind you. You didn't understand before, but now you know better. And so that is in part what it means to live a holy life. <clears throat> to live a holy life, to put it another way, means to live a life that is in accordance with transcendent standards. What does that mean? That means to live according to the standards that are outside of you, outside your feelings, uh, the standards of God, his character, his nature, right? As he is holy, you also be holy to live according to God's word, what he has revealed according to his word. And that, of course, uh, comes directly against what we hear in our culture. We live in a therapeutic culture that tells us you ought to live according to what feels right to you, according to what feels good to you. And that any sort of transcendent standard that's outside of your own feelings and your own personal desires, that is oppression. And that is oppressing you, it's trying to control you. You need to cast that off and this just follow your feelings. Remember, we live in this therapeutic culture where the individual has been exalted to the sovereign one. Where you decide what's best for yourself. But to live a holy life is to, by the grace of God, live according to what is good, not according to what feels good. And what is good is what God has defined as good. There's only one who is good, and that is God himself. Versus what the therapeutic culture tells us, which is, go with your feelings. And to live for Christ like that in our day and age, it's getting harder and harder. It's swimming against the stream of muck that's getting thicker and thicker as the years go by. And Peter understands this, and he understands that Christians need motivation. They need incentives. Believe it or not, the Bible gives incentives for holy living. It doesn't just throw out a list of commands. We need to be motivated to, to live for Christ. And so Peter is in part, in part he's answering the question, why live like this? Remember, these people were beginning to feel the heat, beginning to feel the pressure. Why be holy? And thus far, if you remember, and Scott retouched upon this last week, thus far his motivation has been very positive. Up to this point, largely what he's saying is, this is what should motivate you. Think back at all that God has done for you. That's what he's getting at. That's the point of the word therefore at the beginning of verse 13, right? Where he says, therefore. In other words, in light of what I've told you, therefore. And then a few verses he'll say, be holy as he who called you is holy. And what has God done for them? And what has God done for us? 
First of all, he says, you are alien sojourners, yes, in this world, but you're God's chosen aliens. You have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, pulled out of the society. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, which means you have been forgiven through a substitutionary sacrifice. And by God's great mercy, he caused you to be born again to a living hope in connection with the resurrection of Jesus, which means you have a new birth with new potential, new life uh, in you. And that's what God has done for you. But he also points forward, doesn't he? He also says, verse 13, therefore set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming. Grace has been given to you, and grace will be brought to you at the end. Uh, so he, he, what is he telling them? He, in essence, I'll put it this way, to put it another way, is that you can find motivation when you set your own life in the greater story, the narrative of redemption. What is God doing? What is this all about? He has caused you to be born again. There is a resurrection to come. You will share in glory, you see. And place your life in the greater narrative of the history of redemption and what God is doing. Now that brings us up to the point where we are now. And that's all the way through verse 16 from last time. So what is Peter doing now? In verses 17 to 21, what Peter is doing now is he is providing two more incentives, two more incentives for holy living, for swimming against the current. Two more incentives. And he repeats the command to be holy in a different way when he says, conduct yourselves with fear, he says. Conduct yourselves with fear during or throughout the time of your exile. What's that a reference to? Well, your whole life now since you've been a Christian. You're in exile now. You're on the, on the journey as pilgrims to the promised land, which is heaven. And he says, during your time now, conduct yourselves with fear. That's another way of saying, be holy. But it touches upon the attitude of it. Conduct yourself with fear. And then he connects two incentives to that command. One before and one after. Look down. So before he says, conduct yourselves with fear, before that he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. There's the first incentive. If you do that, then conduct yourselves with fear. And then he provides another incentive after he says it. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. Verse 18, here's a second incentive. Knowing, knowing that you were ransomed he says, with the precious blood of Christ, verse 19. So those are the two incentives that he's providing now. He's placing on top of everything that he has said. Two more incentives, two more reasons, motivations for living a holy life. So we can sum up the message of verses 17 through 21 in this way. What is Peter saying? This is what he's saying. Christians should live holy lives because God our Father is also the impartial judge and because he ransomed us at a tremendous cost. That's what Peter's saying. And in a sense, it's as if Peter says, here are two more incentives. Look up and look at God. Look at his character. 
He is the holy, righteous judge. He's also your father. And then he says, look back. Look back again at the cross and see what? See the inestimable price that was paid for your freedom, you see. And now live holy lives in light of these two things. So let's look at both of those again, beloved. You may find yourself right now in your life, or you have recently, struggling with obeying God, doing what you know is good, and it's going against what feels good. And so here are two things to remember. And the first thing to remember, why do what is good? It's because God, who is the eternal righteous judge, is your father. And we can reverse it. God, who is your heavenly father, has not ceased to be the righteous judge of everyone, you see. And so that statement really is sort of a compound or mixed incentive. There seems to be like a positive side to it and a, and a negative side just to put it that way. The positive part of it, or at least that part that seems more positive is what? Is the fact that God is our Father, right? God, the, the eternal, glorious, holy, just, and perfect creator of the universe who is the righteous judge who will judge on the last day, he's your Father. <laughs> Isn't that good news? <laughs> that when you face the judge, if you're a Christian, He's your father, you see. And so that, I imagine, I'm reading between the lines now, but I can imagine that when Peter wrote this, he might have been reflecting on that day that he and the disciples asked Jesus after seeing him pray. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven. And they had heard Jesus call God his Father, but this must have been a shock to them, beloved. And God is called Father in the Old Testament as only some 15 times, and he's really called the Father of Israel. But Jesus is saying this is very personal now. You can say our Father or my Father. In fact, God is called Father or addressed as Father uh, some 245 times in the New Testament. And so that was a, a tremendous change, the intimacy of this address. And, and so what he's doing is he is building Building upon the nature of our relationship with God. Verse 14, as obedient children, you see, we are the children of God. It's expected that we would obey our Father in heaven and reflect Him. Uh, this uh, the fact that we're His children is reinforced all throughout the New Testament. John, the apostle, speaks several times about the manner of love. Behold one manner of love that we should be called the children of God. Uh, Paul says that we are now the sons of God through Christ Jesus, uh, no longer slaves to sin, but now we are heirs in the household, the family of God. He says that in Galatians chapter four. And so that's the positive side, isn't it? The righteous judge is your, your father. Uh, but it's, it's the next statement that can startle us. When, then, when he says, so conduct yourselves with fear. <laughs> conduct yourselves with fear. And in chapter four, or two, excuse me, 17, he'll say again, fear God. And, and someone will ask, why? Why, didn't you just say that God is my father? That God's my heavenly father? And that he loves me, he so loved me, he gave his only begotten son. How is it that these two things belong together? How can we say father and, and fear? 
Well, on one level, any child who's had a good spanking probably has an opinion about that. But uh, that's not altogether what the message is here. Here's what the message is. That while God is truly our Father, He does not cease to be the almighty, glorious, righteous judge. And we are not uh, somehow uh, taking out from his scrutiny and his observation. That's what he's saying. Again, let me put it another way. He is your father, but he didn't stop being the righteous judge in order to be your father. He remains the righteous God judge. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, it says that God is ready, right now, ready to judge the living and the dead. He is prepared. I think part of what we struggle with maybe, there are different, several reasons. One of them is um, the breakdown of the, uh, in our society of the family as the centerpiece of society, the the. the the, the central uh, component of society. And in ancient societies, the family was that basic and essential component. Um, and in these ancient societies, fathers acted as judges of their household, believe it or not. Fathers had the authority to act as judges. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, the father had the right of what's called the pater familias, in the Roman, Greco-Roman world, particularly under the Roman Empire. And what that meant is that the father of the household had the authority, the right, of making life or death decisions over the members of their households. Um, now, it wasn't that way in the Jewish households, per se. Uh, but nevertheless, in, even in uh, the Old Covenant Society of the people of God, the people of Israel, uh, they were patriarchal and fathers commanded respect and, and reverence and honor. Uh, so that's part of what's breaking down in our mind when we think about father and fear. And here it says um, that he judges in the present tense. In other words, Right now, the, God is evaluating. Our Father is aware. He sees what's happening, and he, is, he judges impartially, which means that, like a good father, he doesn't play favorites in, in his family. He will judge fairly, and he will judge individually. It says they're each one. Each one, God judges uh, individually. Now, having said that, then, I want to make clear right away that this is not a judgment as to your salvation, a judgment as to whether or not you are going to be in the family. That's not what this is at all. If you're a Christian, your standing in the family of God is never in question. You did not get yourself in. You can't get yourself out. You cannot sin yourself out. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And someone might say, yeah, now, but what about at the end? Well, in Romans 5, he says, if we've been saved now through his sacrifice, we shall be saved from the Father's wrath in the end, you see. And so this is not, beloved, this is not, uh, we would say, the fear, when he says fear, conduct yourself fear, with fear, it's not the fear of rejection. It's not the fear of possibly being cut off from the family of God. If you are a Christian, nothing will ever alter that. 
But nevertheless, your life, what you do with your ministries, what you say, what you accomplish, what you do with your opportunities that God has given us, Jesus told the parable of the talents. Each of us has been given opportunities and gifts. Those things will be judged. We will be evaluated on the basis of those things, you see. And, and the judgment of what we have done will only serve to give evidence that we truly belong to Christ Jesus because God, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And those are the things that are going to be evaluated. Uh, Paul was quick to say that even he would be evaluated, that his very ministry as an apostle would be judged. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. He said the foundation of every true ministry in every church is the person of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified, right? And raised from the dead. And then he says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. It'll be made clear for the day will disclose it. What day? the day of judgment, right? The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. <laughs> Though, as through fire, or we would say, by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin, chin, you know. It's, it's, it's what it, it's, it, his point is not that your, your justification was ever in risk. His point was that our works should demonstrate the reality of Christ being in us, right? That we have this new life, and there will be reward, and there will also be those things that will um, eliminate reward. So Paul says that his life is evaluated. He admits it. It's judged. Chapter 4, he goes on. He says, you know, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> Why is that? Because God's the judge. We tend to be lenient or harsh, either with ourselves or other people. But Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, he says, then on that day, each one will receive his commendation from God. And so, Father and fear, they do belong together. Uh, God is our Father but he does not cease to be the righteous judge who has entrusted us with gracious gifts and capacities, and he's observing our lives, and they will be measured. And so this reality is meant to be an incentive for holy living. Uh, it, it's meant to encourage us to live carefully, 
to remember that whatever we do is always happening before the eyes of the Lord in heaven. Uh, for many years, <clears throat> Ligonier's ministry, uh, the ministry of the late R.C. Sproul, has used that Latin slogan, Coram Dell. Coram Dell, which means what? Before the face of God. We are living our lives every day, every moment, before the very face of God. He sees and he knows. And so this is the very first incentive you see here. Uh, reverence, fear. And fear, fear, conduct yourself with fear. Uh, he's writing to Christians. Fear captures the proper attitude of a child of God. But get it right, beloved. What kind of fear? Again, it's not the fear of rejection. It's not a paralyzing terror or a dread that a prisoner feels when, 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 when those who have imprisoned him is, are coming, you know, ready for another whipping. It, it, we, we are, the picture of a Christian is not, to, not that we are crouching down like a beaten puppy waiting for the next kick. That's not the kind of fear that Peter is talking about, right? That fear does not fit the joy and the safety and confidence that we are in the family of God, that we belong in the family. But beloved, there is a fear that is consistent with confidence. And it's meant to lead you to live according to God's ways. You can be a good driver, and what you still need is what? A healthy fear of crashing in order to make sure that you drive safely, you see. And that's what I'm talking about. Uh, some years ago, we went to Italy for my cousin's wedding. Sherry and I, we rented a, an Alfa Romeo, and uh, it was a five-speed. And I remember driving that Alfa Romeo. Uh, when you're on freeways, no big deal. But when we got to the Amalfi Coast, <laughs> and we're driving on these little roads where these big buses are coming at you, I'm a confident driver. <laughs> But it was fear that kept me <laughs> driving safely, you see. It was the respect, respect for the cliffs <laughs> and respect for the signs that said, slow down. <laughs> so many kilometers per hour is advised here, you see. And so what Peter is saying in a, in a way is that knowing that the Father who, who is watching us, though he is our heavenly Father, he does not cease to be the righteous judge, and he's aware of our life. That's meant to what? That's meant to have the same effect, to lead you to be careful in how you live. <clears throat> it's not the fear of rejecting. It's the fear, put it different ways, it's the fear of disappointing him. It's the fear of offending him. It's the fear of misrepresenting him and the gospel and the Lord Jesus. It's the fear of falling into sin and staying there and drifting away and getting cold, you see. It's fear the Lord is, is that. It's revere him, prize him. It's not a fear that drives us away from him. It's a fear that drives us toward him, knowing that holiness is what pleases our heavenly Father. It's a fear that says, I want to be like my heavenly father. I remember putting on my dad's um, hard hat for construction work. When I was a little boy, when he wasn't home, this big old hard hat, I put it on, of course it was way too big for my head and it, it wobbled all over me. But I wanted to be like dad. 
And it's a fear that leads you to say, I want to look like the Father in heaven. I want to be like the Father in heaven. That's the kind of fear we're talking about here. And it's an attitude of humility that should characterize us all of our life as Christians. He says throughout, throughout, right, conduct yourself with journey throughout this time of your uh, pilgrimage here on this earth. Proverbs 28 says it this way, verse 14. Listen to this. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Always, not just on Sundays. (laughs) Always. And then he goes on to say, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Did you notice the implication there? To fear the Lord must be the opposite of hardening your heart. To fear the Lord is to have a soft heart, to be humble, to be pliable, to listen to him, to respect him. And so father and fear, yes, they belong together. In fact, we heard read from Psalm 130 uh, this morning after the call to worship that there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. You know. He's the only one who has the authority to remove your guilt, forgive your sins, that he may be respected and revered for that power and authority that he has. You know, our problem is that we, we tend to want to resolve tensions like this that are all throughout the Bible, right? By swinging to one or another. We, some of us just don't like tension of these two things being together, like God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But they're both there, you see. And here you have what? Father, fear. And we tend to swing like a pendulum one to the other, you know. We think about the Father and we just think love, 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 love. And we start forgetting that he is also the watching, ever watchful, perfect, holy, righteous judge. And that we will give an account to him, you see. And so it's a matter of keeping those things in tension and remembering that. Alexander McLaren, the Scottish preacher a few generations ago, (laughs) writing on this, he said this, I quote him, he says, I suppose in Peter's days, as in our days, there were people that fell, so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other. And, And who so magnified the thought of the Father that they forgot the thought of the judge. That error has been committed over and over again in all ages so that the church as a whole, one may say, has gone swaying from one extreme to the other and has rent or has torn these two conceptions widely apart and sometimes has been foolish enough to pit them against each other instead of doing as Peter does here, braiding them together as both conspiring to one result, the production in the Christian heart of a wholesome awe. A wholesome awe. That's a beautiful uh, way of characterizing it. Our whole life is worship. And when we gather, we worship. And worship maintains that tension, that balance between the joy of his fatherhood and the reverence of the almighty judge, right? Worship is joyful 
reverence or reverent joy, uh, depending on, on the moment. In some, in some places, the, it's, the pendulum just swings, you know all the way to father, daddy, lovey, love, 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 and no discussion about holiness, no discussion about the fact that, that it matters to God how we're living today. And in other places, the pendulum swings the other way. There's talk so much about holiness that a list is given to you. <laughs> and there's very little remembrance of the foundation of the love of Christ, you see. So beloved, that's the first incentive he adds, right? Why live holy? Why swim against the, the, the culture? Because God is our Father, but He's also still the impartial judge, and we will give an account to Him. And secondly, why live holy? Because God has ransomed us at a tremendous cost. So further motivation is given. And Peter says, if you look back down, uh, he say, he's saying, live holy lives, conduct yourselves with fear. Verse 18 knowing, knowing. Think about that word just for a second. This is something you should know, something you reflect upon that leads you to conduct yourselves with fear, to live a holy life. What? Knowing that you have been um, ransomed. God has ransomed you from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And he's done so with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The emphasis in all of this is the cost the word precious, the, the precious blood of Jesus Christ was the price paid for your liberty if you are a Christian today. And so what's the point of this whole section all the way down to verse 21? Don Carson in his commentary just puts it succinctly. Here's what he says. Listen, he says, the point of this paragraph as a whole is plain enough not to pursue holiness is to despise and insult the inestimable value of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. He doesn't say not to live a perfect life because we won't. <laughs> but he's saying to not give a rip and not pursue holiness, to not be concerned about whether you're pleasing your Father in heaven. He says, you know what that is? That's to despise, to spit upon, to make little of the inestimable price that was paid for your liberty in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. I think that's the heart of the message right here. But let's take it apart for a minute. He says, you were a ransom. What, what does the ransom mean? The verb means to, to redeem, to set free, to liberate, to, to purchase out or to buy back. Um, we, we, we don't use the term much. In, in, our own, in our own setting, sometimes we hear ransom, we think only of, you know, of uh, somebody who's been kidnapped and a, a ransom is paid. There's some connection there. Paul uses the verb when he says in Titus 2.14 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to ransom us from all lawlessness. And while this idea of ransom is not a common everyday sort of idea for us, for us it certainly was for them. Remember, these were, these were Christians who came out of the Greco-Roman culture, and this idea of ransom was everywhere uh, around them. Uh, slavery uh, was part of it, and slavery was not based on race, but largely upon economics. Many were slaves because they had gone into debt, 
And so they went into a, a debtor's prison, as it were, and others were sold into slavery. But you could buy your way out of slavery. You could pay your way out of slavery in their context. And that payment of the price was the ransom, the ransom that was paid for liberty. Now, there's no doubt that they thought about that when Peter's talking about ransom, but Peter's background is, 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 is Jewish. Peter's background is the Old Testament. I think what was predominantly on Peter's mind because of all these allusions to what? Allusions to Israel and the Exodus and the journey to the promised land and so forth, probably what was primarily on Peter's mind when he says you were ransomed was the ransom that was paid to what? Redeem Israel out from Egypt, out from slavery to Egypt. And so put it in other ways as if what Peter's saying is, is this, is as, as a great price was paid to redeem or rescue or uh, ransom Israel out of Egypt, so a precious, inestimable price has been paid for your liberty to ransom you. That's what it means to ransom, to be set free from bondage. And what were we in bondage to? We were in bondage to sin, in bondage to its power, its control, its condemnation. But he focuses on one aspect of it. He says, you've been set free. You've been ransomed from, listen, the futile ways. The word ways there is that word he loves to use. Your way of life, your conduct. Uh, futile ways. What is futile? It's vain, empty. He's saying you were living a futile life. You were, you were worshiping gods that don't even exist. <laughs> you were spending money on little things and fall, falling down in front of little statues which are nothing. Futile ways. He says you were, you were, your life was empty and you were trying to fill it with stuff and things and it was all empty. It's vain. It was going nowhere, you see. That's what he's saying to them and you were ransomed from that. You were bought out of it and there's a there's a sense in which though you and I weren't bowing down to little, you know, little statuettes and little carvings, beloved, if you're a Christian, your way of life before uh, was what? It was an empty, vain, and futile life because you were living for other idols which in the end bring nothing to you, which in the end won't set you free from the wrath of God and which in this life will only frustrate you. In fact, Paul says this to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He describes all of us. He says, we, we ourselves were once foolish. Put yourself in that, please. <laughs> we, that's you. <laughs> we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Wow, <laughs> that, that's, that's the American rat race right there. <laughs> well, what, what were you doing? You were trying to fill the emptiness with stuff, envious of those who had more stuff, being hated by them because you envy them, and hating one another. That was your futile way of life, he says. But you were ransom. A price was paid to pull you out of that vanity and that emptiness, that empty way of life that you were living before, you see. I hope you understand that. I know that not all of you, listen, some of you grew up in solid Christian homes, 
Some of you are younger. You maybe never went through such a dramatic sort of transition uh, as what he's describing here, these Gentile Christians. Um, and, and so praise God for that. But the vast majority of us here in, in this congregation can understand that, in, that until he found me, my life was going nowhere. Amen? And you see, and that's the message. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying to you and me, hey, Christian, you, you want some impetus? You want some motivation? Remember where you were. <laughs> Remember what you were. Remember where you were heading. Remember where all your energies were going. Remember how your life was empty. You tried to fill it with a new Lexus, a new house, a new relationship, a new this or that. And remember how empty it all was. Let that motivate you, he says. To be grateful, and to be grateful for the price that set you, set you free. Ask yourself the question, if you haven't in some time, ask yourself this question. Why is it that so many, not all, but so many of the of successful people who have achieved what they have sought after admit that in the end they feel so empty? Time and time again, successful athletes who admit that they're empty, successful businessmen and women, successful actors, some who end up taking their own life, they're so empty. Why is it they come to say after they have achieved all these life goals, they feel empty? Because they were made for something much bigger and much better. You were made for something much bigger and better. The bigger story. You were made for what? To know the living God, have a relationship with our Creator into eternity apart from all sin. That's what you're made for. You can't fill an empty soul with stuff or achievements. It behooves me to ask you, where are you on this? Are you still trying to fill an empty void? Or have you, has that void been filled by the Son of God? And so that's what we were ransomed from. And what was the price, Peter says? It wasn't gold or silver. Oh, that's going to melt someday. It's perishable, he says. It was something much more precious. What was the price paid for our ransom? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's saying, all the wealth in the world all the gold and silver in the world could never make you right with the living God, could never take away your sin, and can never save you from the condemnation that is coming on the last day. You cannot buy your way into the kingdom of God. But there is a price that was paid, and that price was the substitutionary death of the Son of God, Jesus the man, Jesus, the sole mediator between God and man. The psalmist affirms there is no buying, buying our ransom, paying for it ourselves. Psalm 49 verse 7 says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We can't pay for someone else's 
sin. We can't ransom someone else's life with our own life as much as you may want to. Why? Because you have your own sin that needs to be dealt with, you see. And so there was one price paid, and it was paid by the plan of our Heavenly Father who sent the Eternal Son to add humanity to his eternal nature and to, as a man, live a holy life in our stead and as a man trusting in the power of the Spirit in his life to lay down his life for us. And he says, his blood, his blood was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's no doubt that what Peter is alluding to here, of course, is the Passover. And also maybe the Day of Atonement, which celebrated the Passover. You remember that in the Passover, that in the, the original Passover, in the great exodus of, of Israel from Egypt, when, when, in, when, the, when the angel of death was coming to bring judgment upon the firstborn of every household, the Lord said, here's how you can be safe. You need to take a lamb, but this lamb needs to be unblemished, perfect, without spot, and you are to sacrifice it. You are to shed its blood, and then you are to paint that blood on the doorposts. Everyone in that house is just as guilty as everyone living in the Egyptian homes, you see. But the spirit, excuse me, the angel of death will pass by those homes, pass over those who have placed their faith in the word of God regarding the need to place the blood which symbolized, represented the blood of the true lamb, our lamb, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And so the judgment would pass them over. And so what he's saying here, Peter's alluding to that, and he's making clear that all that prefigured the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, who was judged on our behalf, whose blood was shed, that we might be spared the wrath of God. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Can you put yourself for a moment, please, in the mind of these, these Israelites in Egypt and understanding, seeing the magnitude of God's power in, in the various plagues that he brought upon Egypt and knowing that tonight, tonight, there is coming the angel of death and we are just as uh, unworthy as any Egyptian and the only thing that will save us is if we believe God will pass us over if we do this and then you had to find a lamb. You got this perfect unblemished lamb. You held this little creature and then you slit its throat and you saw its blood pour out and it came all over you and it came all over the animal and then you took this blood and you put it over the, the doorposts and then you did what? You waited. You waited. And Peter says all of that was just prefiguring the lamb of God who came to endure uh, what they were spared on that night, and that is the power of the condemnation and the wrath of God against sin. In fact, Peter will say, chapter 318, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, you see. And all this, all this is God's doing it's all God's doing. Verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This was all God's plan. And then look at verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. He doesn't say that you ransomed yourself or that you contributed it 
or that you, were, you, you figured it out. What does he say? He says, you were ransomed. Even before you were born, you were ransomed at the cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And in fact, in the mind of God, the Lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And Revelation 13, 8 says that he was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning what? God always had in mind, beloved, to ransom you, <laughs> to redeem you, and to forgive you of your sins by imputing your guilt to his son. That's astounding. Let it just flood your soul with gratitude. Jesus says in Mark, the son of man came. That's why he came. He came to what? To give his life a ransom. Give his life a ransom for many. And then Peter says, through him, you are believers in God. Notice that. He doesn't just say you are forgiven. It's through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ you are not only forgiven, but that's the only reason you are a believer. You are a believer through him. That is by being united to him by God's sovereign grace through your union with Jesus Christ. You are justified, adopted, sanctified, and that's why you believe. <laughs> For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Amen? I'm just trying to help you see, beloved, the weight here to, to say what, how I live my life doesn't matter. To be unconcerned about what you put in your, your mind and what comes through your eyes and what you say and how you live. To be unconcerned about these things is to despise the blood of Christ. It is to walk by as if a little price was paid for your ransom and your redemption. We are not to despise this. Well, Peter could have ended right there, couldn't he not? And said, here's a motivation, look up. God is your father, but he's still the judge. And here's another motivation, look back and remember the inestimable price that was paid for you. But he doesn't end on death. He moves straight to resurrection and hope again. He wants them to look forward again. And so look back. He says, through him, you are believers in God who raised him from the dead. In other words, there's the assurance that his blood accomplished something, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He ascended to the right hand of the fathers. what he's saying, so that your faith and hope are in God the God who raises the dead. And now he points us back. He's going all the way back, full circle, all the way back to verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Glorious things to reflect upon, beloved. He did not only die as our Passover lamb, but he was raised on the third day in power, he was given glory. He has ascended to the right hand of the living God in heaven. He has poured out his spirit upon the church. And as a result of this, your faith and your hope are in God who keeps his word, God who raises the dead. And so you want two incentives for living for what is good rather than what feels good? For living a life according to transcendent standards, the character of God, here are two further incentives. He says, reverence, reverence. 
Your father never stopped being the righteous judge. Respect him. Gratitude. An unestimable price was paid for your liberty. Use it for good. And lastly, live in anticipation. Your faith and hope are in God who raises the dead. You know, this week, um, my reflection took me mostly to the gratitude part of things. Maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, much talk, so much talk about what are you thankful for? But as I studied this passage, what, what just kept hitting me the most was how little I perceive at times the magnitude of what was done for me and how little sometimes I feel grateful for it. And I prayed over and over, God, thank you for, for ransoming me and showing me, help me to, to live a life of gratitude. Not a burdensome life because you're my father, but a holier life because I'm grateful and I love you. And my mind went to um, that epic World War II movie by Spielberg in the late 90s, um, and that is the, the movie Saving Private Ryan. And I don't imagine that all of you have seen it, and that's fine, but I'll just tell you a little something about that movie, which was quite a film because how powerfully it depicted the horrors of war. But one of the messages in that movie was not to despise the value of lives sacrificed for freedom. Not to devalue it, not to despise it. Um, and the way the movie goes is, and, uh, is, is that it begins with this elderly veteran and he visits the Normandy Cemetery in France with his family where thousands of American soldiers, among others, were buried. And he comes to this specific grave. You can picture all those rows of white crosses. He comes to this specific grave and he's just overcome with emotion and he falls to his knees in front of this cross. And then, the, and then he begins to reflect on the war and the rest of the movie is really his memory about what happened. And so immediately it goes to the invasion of, uh, of Normandy when the Allies landed on Normandy Beach and you see the bloodshed. And soon after, what happens is news reaches, news reaches the staff of the US Department of War that there's this private, private James Ryan who is missing and he is presumed to be the last survivor of four brothers who are all in the military. And so the general who's in charge at that point, he orders Ryan to be found. They need to save Private Ryan so that the family doesn't loot all four of their sons. And so they wanted to send him home. And so Captain John Miller, uh, who was played by Tom Hanks, he's ordered to lead a detachment and what's the mission? Save Private Ryan. Find Private Ryan and save him. And so the, the movie goes on. There's all these harrowing battles. Uh, there's a lot of bloodshed, a lot, lot, of, lot of pain. And they finally find uh, Private Ryan and they're not done with the battles. And they come to a point where they're, they're, they're at, in a heated battle on a bridge. But Miller, that is the part paid by Hanks, he's mortally wounded in this whole process of saving Ryan. And he's leaning back against the wall of the bridge. And his life is ebbing out of him. And the blood is flowing. And Ryan finds him. 
and he mumbles quite softly to Ryan. He says, earn this, earn this. And what he means was, he's referring to the sacrifices that have been made by his men and him in order to, for him to survive and have a post-war life. Earn this, he says. And then, suddenly we're back to the cemetery. And Ryan is revealed to be the elderly veteran. He is there now, visiting the grave of John Miller, who gave his life for him. And he expresses gratitude for the sacrifices that were made for him there. And he says, looking at that white cross, he says, every day I think about what you said to me on the bridge. Every day I think about what you said to me on the bridge. And he says, I hope that in your eyes at least I've earned it. And he looks to his wife and says, tell me, tell me I lived a good life. He's looking for some assurance, you know, that he had somehow merited such a high price. Now the illustration breaks down because what, you, what Christ did for you and me, we could never earn. And you and I will never live lives worthy of the precious blood. But he knew that. He knew that when he came here to ransom you. He knew that when he was crucified. And I think we would do much better if we could say every day, I think about what you did for me on the cross. Every day, I think about that and reflect upon it. Lord, help me as your child to put on the, the hard hat, put on the clothes that don't fit, but help me want to be like you, Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray.